Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, everyone. Vicki Vasilega here. Thanks for listening in to today's COVID-19 podcast. Today's feature podcast is from a COVID-19 webinar recorded earlier that you may have missed or may want to hear again. So let's listen in as our content matter experts share their experiences and recommendations for optimal patient care and operational strategies. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcasts. So a little bit of background about Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We have 623 staffed beds, all adult patient population, a large critical care population with 127 adult beds, five ICUs with an eight on six off pharmacist staffing setup, which will be pertinent as we focus on the critical care uh, COVID-19 ICU um, for this case presentation. Decentral clinical pharmacy services include intensive care, medicine, surgery, oncology, solid organ transplant, emergency department, and then operating room services. We also have robust pharmacy transitions of care services with technician completed medication history, admission and discharge medication reconciliation review by the pharmacist. Order verification is completed offsite by our pharmacy integrated clinical services team, completing greater than 90% of the order verification. And then we have a large learner population on site as well with students, uh, residents, notably 18 PGY1 residents and all integrated into practice. So with that, before we get started diving into the case, let's provide and review some additional background on clinician uh, well-being and burnout. So burnout is included in the 11th revision of the International Classification of Diseases, or ICD-11. It's noted as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It is characterized by three dimensions, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job or feeling of negativism or cynicism related to one's job and reduced professional efficacy. Additionally, burnout refers specifically to the phenomenon in the occupational context and cannot be applied to other settings outside of the workplace. Greater than 20, over 20 years ago, um, the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine, came out with To Air is Human. More recently, in 2019, they came out with a report taking action against clinician burnout, a system approach to well-being. Here we'll pause briefly to reflect on this report and reflect our familiarity with it. So as you reflect on this, have you had the opportunity to read the Taking Action Against Clinician Burnout report? What were your key takeaways from the report? Additionally, in the year of 2020 and the many changes that we've seen, have you re-looked at this report or reviewed its findings? At your site, have discussions occurred or have you completed action steps uh, surrounding clinician well-being and burnout? And how have you specifically contributed? As a result of this presentation, depending on your answers, hopefully you'll be armed with new tools and tactics to uh, implement these at your site. As we reflect, we'll also think about why is this important? I think it's clear why it's important, but it's always good to 
to review. So this is a common issue. Uh, burnout is a common issue in healthcare professions. Pharmacy per- personnel are not immune. Um, there's consequences for our patients, clinicians, healthcare organizations, and society overall. As we look at this, what are the contributing factors that we've seen? In the report, it identifies a balance between job demands and job resources. When these get out of balance, individuals are prone or at risk for burnout. So with this, I'll I'll highlight a few. Um, Many of these contributing factors are under the control of healthcare organizations um, because they largely outline or dictate how the work will be performed. When we look at job demands, we can see patient factors, perhaps patient acuity, excessive workload, the administrative burden of laws, regulations, and standards, workforce or workflow um, interruptions and distractions in the day. And then with job resources, we can also see a few notable there with organizational culture, uh, professional relationships, and that social support. And then, of course, ever familiar work-life integration. There were six goals identified in the study that came out. And we'll review those briefly here. So create positive work environments. The work environment should foster well-being and support quality care. Create positive learning environments. Transform the healthcare profession's training to optimize these learning environments. Reduce the administrative burden. So preventing and reducing the negative consequences that are the result of potential laws, standards, policies, or regulations, enabling technology solutions, utilizing health information technology solutions to improve the quality of care the interdisciplinary team is able to provide, uh, provide support to clinicians and learners. So decreasing the stigma and eliminating barriers as individuals seek to obtain support or to prevent or alleviate burnout symptoms. And then finally, invest in research Uh, dedicated to finding and researching uh, other solutions to clinician well-being. So now that we have the foundation set, uh, let's get back to the case. Setting the stage, what does COVID-19 at St. Luke's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin look like? What did it look like? And then I'll provide a few updates from when the slide was submitted. So we had our first patient in March uh, 19th. We had, I hesitate to say peak as I know the days there, but initially we saw a max of 59 patients confirmed with COVID-19. This uh, range, we saw this between early April and then even on the first day of June. Um, As of uh, mid-September, we had over 750 cumulative patients with COVID-19 inpatient at our facility. Um, At the time of this recording, in early November, we now have almost 100 patients in-house each day. And then cumulatively, we have seen over 1,100 patients total. We're seeing more patients than ever. And as I go through these slides, I'll provide some additional updates from what we've seen in our uh, case study and how our um, solutions and partnership with the clinicians have evolved during this second wave. At St. Luke's, we also had designated units. So we have one ICU that is identified for the COVID-19 patient population. Depending on the volume, we have flex to a second unit with um, half of that unit converting during peak times. The 
COVID-19 ICU has 24 beds. And then um, acute care units, those are moving uh, quickly as the hospital was uh, determining what the best uh, location was for these patients. It settled in on three, but now that we are seeing a second wave, we've seen this expand beyond just those three units that were originally identified. So beyond, you know, what we're seeing at St. Luke's, uh, what were we doing in uh, uh, March through June um, with some of our pharmacist workflows and how did we move those around? So we did trial pharmacist work from home teams. This was established for select acute care teams. Um, for context, at our hospital, a team is comprised of one pharmacist. It has a minimal um, number of one learner, so either a resident or a student, perhaps both. Although notably, we did suspend student rotations during this time for a period of time. Uh, we also saw a large schedule impact. So as our volumes were decreasing, especially in our acute care units, uh, elect with our elective surgeries being stopped, it required a lot of flexibility of the staff with that schedule. Our coverage of units was changing daily, uh, making it challenging for pharmacists to keep up, but noting that we needed to be judicial financial stewards of our resources. And if people were not needed, um, they were moved to either project assignments or moved um, to provide care at a site that needed the assistance. We also offered voluntary PTO uh, for some pharmacists during this time were just preferring not to come in. Um, so with this combination, it worked uh, really well for our department. Of note, um, and specific focus of this case is um, our ICU staffing and our critical cares. While the ICUs had volumes that were a little bit less than what they typically see, um, it wasn't low enough to make significant changes in that area. And so for the work from home teams, the unit coverage, the potential PTO, or moving pharmacists and allowing them to work on different project assignments, that was more focused on the acute care uh, group of pharmacists. So that was those um, perceived, um, potentially perceived benefits for some were not observed by our critical care pharmacists. So with this environment in the year of 2020, uh, looking at this, what could go wrong, you could say? Well, a number of things uh, were going wrong. And um, ultimately two staff members uh, raised the red flag for really experiencing symptoms of burnout and, and challenges. And, and they raised the red flag after six weeks of high COVID-19 volumes that we were seeing at our site, um, medium to high as they were adjusting to the new um, COVID-19 population. So they put these concerns, um, they really fell into four categories as we looked at it. There were clinical concerns. So these patients um, are very acute. They're quick and frequent decompensation requiring the pharmacist to be at the bedside for a number of patients, perhaps all at the same time, which just is not feasible. A lack of knowing how best to handle the situation. There are a lot, there's a lot of literature coming out, number of different theories, uh, therapies were changing. The pharmacists felt like they, in some cases, were the gatekeepers of certain therapies and having the challenge of a lack of literature to assess, but yet needing to uh, provide their input to the interdisciplinary team and making sure that we are doing what was best and safest for our patients um, was taxing on them. When we looked at distribution, we know these patients require increased vasopressors, sedatives, and they need them in large quantities. Um, and so we needed to, uh, we had challenges with the automated dispensing cabinet inventories, um, stocking out frequently. 
And then as therapies changed, um, the pharmacist just shared, you know, when we need something, we need a lot of it and we need it immediately. And the turnaround time for Central wasn't necessarily always meeting those demands or and the workflows in Central weren't set up to meet those demands. As we looked at the pharmacist workflow, there is a complex and ever-changing remdesivir process, just as just as probably the most notable workflow concern. So this also was um, burdensome of clinical pharmacists, of uh, central pharmacy distribution, preparation. Um, we were receiving it from the state initially, and that process was often um, changing and uh, requiring a lot more hands-on pharmacist time than perhaps another antibiotic that we would prescribe in the hospital. Uh, we did roll out a number of system-level um, workflows, and um, in one case, those were not tailored to our site um, for some very small changes that were needed, um, but this was uh, rolled out and um, was an area for opportunity. And then the pharmacists um, in this ICU were really looked at as the COVID-19 experts, um, all the other pharmacists were reaching out to them with questions. System resources and knowledge sharing was occurring across the system, which is fantastic. Um, they enjoyed this. They embraced this. But the challenge here and the challenge with the workflow is that this was all added workload to their day-to-day -day monitoring and day-to-day -day care for their direct patient care activities. Also, their overall well-being. While most pharmacists were not seeing the uh, COVID-19 patients on their unit, they may have even been seeing smaller um, patient uh, loads for their workload. Um, they weren't fully, um, the, the perception was they may not have been fully embracing the different environment that the uh, COVID-19 ICU pharmacists were, were having and challenged with day to day. And then um, the long-term outlook. So as we wrapped up the, the concerns, the first conversation with those pharmacists, um, it, it just um, made note, and, and it's somewhat paraphrasing, but I tried to capture it as best able. They shared, it feels like burden of the direct patient care activities for St. Luke's COVID-19 patients is falling to the two of us, and it's not sustainable. As they looked at the long-term outlook, we weren't seeing any um, anticipated changes with COVID-19. Um, they're concerned that in the summer it would get worse, and with our large PGY-1 um, uh, class that we take on. We also focus on um, training and we utilize our ICUs and, and thinking of training a PGY-1 in this environment was um, just not sustainable. So um, with that, with the red flag, what was the existing support in place? Had we made as a department any changes in the um, in what we were doing? So there were frequent check-ins with the COVID-19 unit pharmacists, Skype and in-person rounding, which is um, similar to what we had done pre-pandemic uh, we had just completed midpoint check-ins in May. Uh, so there are one-on-one -on -one discussions with each team member um, and their supervisor. These were overwhelmingly positive for the environment that we were in by my um, assessment. And really the exception was those two critical care pharmacists that were had shared um, the concerns. And this was all occurring um, around the same time. We did complete um, enhanced well-being and resilience activities Two of our pharmacists had the opportunity to attend the Pharmacist Society of Wisconsin uh, educational conference, and they attended a well-being and resilience session, and they brought some of the learnings back, the activities back to St. Luke's, and we uh, completed that, and that was very well received by staff. And then ultimately in our department, 
you know, the general open door policy, culture of supporting transparency, collaboration. And if it's not working, let's fix it. Let's fix it quickly. Um, let's do what we need to do to make improvements. So looking at existing support and um, the challenges, uh, really needed to dig in and find out what the where we were seeing this gap in understanding. And it really became clear that there was a misalignment between the COVID-19 ICU work environment and the leadership perception of, of what was occurring and how they were feeling. Um, the tactics taken immediately were to just sit down and listen, ask questions, uh, repeat back understanding of the perception of the issues, and then ask more questions. And I will say this part was difficult. Um, as we get into it um, on the next few slides, the uh, sharing was difficult for the pharmacists. They, they felt like they wanted to 100% be the go-tos for our department, um, for these patients, for their uh, critical care unit. And, and, you know, expressing concern may feel like they weren't meeting up to their duties, which is absolutely um, not the case in my mind. They wanted to maintain, um, they're, they're heavily involved in a number of different um, professional organizations, as well as organizations or committees and um, councils in our pharmacy department, system pharmacy department. So they wanted to maintain that. Um, and they also uh, really enjoy precepting students and residents. And so as they were looking at things that have to change, um, that was another challenge. And then also just finding the time to sit down with these uh, pharmacists when they're um, finding coverage to have someone else watch the unit um, because they were still taking care of these very acute patients. So with looking at this misalignment, um, of course, we wanted to jump to solutions, but all while we were looking at solutions, really needed to feel comfortable and, and reflect as a leader and as a department, you know, how did we get here? What, what led us to this? So there were some leader factors. I think this is where we really get into those avoidable mistakes. So these would be um, the uh, kind of some of the mistakes or misunderstandings um, that, that I think of when I think of this case. Um, and what uh, we saw here. So the COVID-19 ICU pharmacists, very experienced, as I've alluded to, um, hands-down leaders in our department. Um, they have a track record of if there's issues, they'll, one, proactively fix them and complete them with very little um, clinical or operational leadership or oversight. Um, and then if, the, if they're running into barriers, then they'll, they'll uh, speak up and, and let us know how we can help. So historically, you know, if there are issues, they'll tell us. They always do, having that um, mentality, especially when we're uh, checking in on them. Um, and then assuming that maintaining a similar approach to check-in and, and line of questioning was going to be effective, even though um, we were in a pandemic, and perhaps not considering the team member factors that would go into it as well. Also, um, after debriefing and chatting with the um, some in the moment and then some as we reflected on the situation um, after some team member factors go into this as well. And so there's really shared accountability. So they had a just get through it mentality, um, especially in the beginning. So like I said, it was about six weeks. Uh, that was about three stretches for each of them. Um, they had eight on, six off, have a bad stretch. OK, the next one won't be as bad. Ooh, the next one was worse. And then having that third stretch that was, you know, we, <laughs> this is the new normal. This could be the new normal. We can't just get through it, um, needing to sound that alarm. 
they, with their large workflow, um, they didn't have any time to sit and think about it, the specific issues or the solutions. Um, they're go, go, go. And as I alluded to, these pharmacists um, are, are hesitant to bring an issue up if they also don't have a solution, which I, I very much appreciate that about them. But this is certainly um, this um, scenario of events. It, it didn't allow for that. And then with that, um, just her overall reluctance to ask for help because they didn't necessarily know what to ask for because they weren't sure what solutions would work and had challenges with each. Um, so now let's get to um, the solutions or improvements. Solution implies that these are resolved. So I'm not sure that I love my word choice with solutions, but how about let's look at the um, improvements uh, that we focused on at least immediately. And then um, I'll talk through some of the things that we're seeing now with the second wave. So again, um, keeping in these uh, clinic or these buckets or topics, um, clinical, um, considering additional pharmacist support. Um, you know, this was um, didn't necessarily like having another pharmacist help them monitor the unit because they wanted to ultimately still provide care. I'm still accountable for that provider. So we trialed a couple things with this. Um, some of it helped a little bit, but not necessarily completely. Um, on the weekends, this. ICU did have some um, minor acute care responsibilities in the morning, completely changed that up, which was an easy and quick fix that just made sense. Um, we streamlined system support and uh, knowledge sharing throughout the organization. And with time, we know that we just learned more about this disease. Um, and noting that these two team members are leaders and they um, appreciate the knowledge and want to be served as the go-to Absolutely, when they expressed interest in wanting to go to um, the SCCM COVID-19 focused conference, um, wanting to make sure we, we supported that if that was in their interest and one of them did end up attending. Also, um, with distribution, this is something that we um, quickly worked on with the automated dispensing cabinets. Ran into issues with, of course, this amount of space in there, amount of space in our refrigerators with our BUDs and these medications that they were needing, um, but did make adjustments there. Simplified the remdesivir process, which came with some of the changes that we've seen in the um, workflows for that. Um, ensured any system processes that were worked out or rolled out um, that we reviewed with a, a small stakeholder group that they were modified for site workflow. All those very small workflow modifications, there are some just site-specific things that we need to make sure that we're completing. Um, also, we did temporarily remove um, students from the uh, COVID-19 ICU, which we did suspend temporarily uh, student rotations during this time frame overall. And then um, the resident rotations were suspended and then no uh, PGY-1 training occurred in this unit. Um, at current state, we do still have the resident rotations uh, suspended um, for the PGY-1s. Um, it looks a little bit different for the PGY-2s. Overall well-being, I guess a point going back to the student and resident, um, these two are leaders in supporting residency training. One is a RPD, the other um, coordinates the critical care rotations for the students. So these are two team, mem team members that are heavily invested. And so while they realized this was a necessary change, it was um, certainly something that was perceived as a negative because that contributes to their work satisfaction. So this is something that we um, talk about frequently and continue to evaluate and make sure that despite not having students and residents on rotations as time allows, how are they getting involved in other ways in the department? 
because uh, we certainly have ample opportunities for that. Overall well-being um, work stretch modification for a few months, we did split the stretches with other ICU pharmacists. Um, this was pro and con because you have to have two day ones for ICU patients. Um, but it did really in our department help build that knowledge base of other pharmacists caring for the COVID-19 patients. Then that ultimately spread out or decreased the number of questions that these two pharmacists were getting. Um, and then we did promote time away. Um, we made some exceptions to our PTO scheduling procedure and policy, which of course, yes, makes sense. Um, exceptions are sometimes necessary, but I do want to note, um, I think as we all probably are very familiar with, a time outside of work has changed um, due to COVID just as much, if not more, um, for time that we're at work. So PTO doesn't necessarily um, look like it did. It still provides time away from the unit, um, but just taking into consideration those um, challenges that we're seeing now too. So where did we end up with this? Um, definitely uh, can't give us a green flag. Didn't solve um, solve all of our problems um, or resolve the issues, but I, we got to a steady yellow flag state. Um, as the volumes decreased, we saw a dip between wave one and wave two. Um, so I think we might've gotten a green flag in there for a while. I think that was just because we saw decreased patients. Um, now, when we're at a... Um, when, when we're seeing the second wave, I think we're at a solid yellow um, after talking frequently with the, the pharmacists and team. Um, we have seen bumps, though, as we as we entered that second wave. Um, there was a really rough weekend um, for a number of different reasons. Sitting down, chatting with the pharmacist about that debriefing, providing that support during the weekend as well um, to them as best able um, and, and as we see those bumps, revisiting those expectations that we set at the beginning, and, and that was really focusing on how this is a partnership between um, leadership and staff. And so uh, with that partnership, there's a couple things that are really important. So overall, awareness of the leadership is key, uh, making sure you're asking questions, um, asking lots of questions, because at the beginning, I found some of the questions I was asking may not have been the right questions. Partner with at-risk individuals to ensure open discussions on current state and if modification is needed. So, you know, how do you assess at-risk individuals? Well, it's not a tool, um, at least that I'm, I'm proposing in this, but I found um, when you look back at that contributing factors or in the um, National Academy of Medicine report, you can look at those contributing factors and um, review that. And a few people may come to mind. Um, specifically for this, it would have been clear that these pharmacists had increased workload, administrative burden, um, a, a number of different issues that probably could have pulled that out. Uh, share accountability, as I mentioned. Um, this, this really is between leadership, the team member, um, and all of staff. And then reflect on your own actions and your potential shortcomings. I found that discussing these transparently with the team um, helped establish a large amount of trust to move forward through it um, and then agree to these shared expectations of how in the future, if, or of course, when this happens again, how, how are we going to move forward and better handle the situation? So felt inclined to put some metrics in here. I don't know that these, you know, it's, it's certainly a stretch that these are directly related, um, but going back to, you know, how did the overall department feel? We did an engagement survey in uh, late June um, previously year we had been, I had been tier three or the pharmacist had rolled up as tier three, um, moved to tier one, um, in 2020, many contributing factors with this. 
Um, a lot of contributing factors in 2019, a lot of contributing factors in 2020 um, for both of those scores, um, but just wanted to include it here. Um, the key thing with this that I didn't touch on, but I think I'm very fortunate to be at the organization that supports this and I think provided a lot of support to me as a leader and to our team members is that company-wide communications. So these are the areas that we improved on. Company-wide communications are timely, transparent, useful. Local and senior leadership um, had clear communications and updates for our team. Um, those were three things that I think we did, or Advocate Aurora Health did very well um, during this time, and I'm very fortunate for that. But I think you can see that in our results and the impact that has for team members. So key points that I hope you uh, can take away. Encourage and support discussion in the department about well-being and burnout prevention. Um, encouraging this not only in times of pandemic, but just throughout and making it a priority in your department. There's small things that you can do um, that, that go a long way. A partner with staff to prevent burnout, identify at-risk individuals by utilizing those contributing factors, uh, review that shared accountability and what your expectations would be. And then finally, as I was preparing for this and, and really revisiting and reflecting on this um, situation that occurred, uh, I, re I reviewed the taking action against clinician burnout, um, the system's approach to professional well-being, and I had a new appreciation, and I, I read it, I think, with a different lens because of recent 2020 experiences. So if you're experiencing any of this in your department or if you add it to your reading list, I guess that would be one of my recommendations um, because with this new 2020 lens that we had, um, they have some new uh, takeaways or learnings from it. Thank you for listening in today. For more information, please be sure to check out the ASHP COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.